Welcome to this week's episode of The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Gazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski, author of Politico's Massachusetts Playbook. We have an excellent show for you this week. Quarterly fundraising reports are mostly out, and they are full of some interesting tidbits. Here to help us break it all down, we have Sean Curran. Sean Curran is a Democratic fundraiser and principal of Waterville Consulting. He served as the former finance chairman of the Deval Patrick Committee and of the Together PAC. He currently serves in the finance committees for Joe Kennedy III and Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell. He also serves on the boards of the Alliance for Business Leadership and Mass Inc., the leading bipartisan think tank in Massachusetts. Leading indeed. Okay, let's get into it. The Federal Election Commission reports dropped this week, which showed quarter three fundraising totals for congressional and Senate candidates. Sean is going to help us walk us through what they mean. First, I want to look at the MA3 congressional race um, up in the uh, Merrimack Valley area. Uh, Dan Coe, uh, former chief of staff to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, raised a staggering amount, blowing away all the other competitors, kind of as we expected. Sean, what does this mean? One of the big narratives here is that he raised most of his money out of district. Does that even matter? Well, I think it matters to the chattering classes for sure. And uh, for those in the news media, um, it's certainly an indication of relative strength. And the fact that the money is coming from out of district probably says a lot more about where Dan has been from a professional perspective for the last couple of years. Um, in my view, fundraising is broken down into three types of donors. There's affinity donors who are friends and family. And if you look at his report, you're going to see a lot of Coes. You're going to see a lot of Arigs, which is his mother's side of the family. You're going to see a lot of folks who, if you trace back their academic credentials, are either Harvard classmates of his or Harvard Business School classmates. The second bucket is uh, ideological and uh, impressed uh, people. Um, and I think that makes up the bulk of his finance report. You know, there was a difference in the way that this mayor uh, in the prior administration um, pushed out their professionals. Um, certainly, there were chiefs of staff to Tom and Nino who were very effective and very talented, but they were not encouraged to take on a personal persona, a public persona. Um, Dan was, and I think in that uh, capacity, he was able to impress a lot of people, and I think that's what you see showing up. The third bucket for uh, donors tends to be proximity donors, what I'll call proximity donors, people who are in the business of doing business with government, um, who uh, think that that is, uh, you know, basically their dues paying uh, to participate in the civic dialogue. So the number that came out from Statehouse News was that somewhere around 95 percent of his of his fundraising was outside of district. I mean, I get that it's not, you know, exactly what the breakdown is, isn't important. But with that high of an amount, does that say anything about his ability to generate support within the district? Or is it just way too early to start drawing those kinds of conclusions? I think it's kind of early to draw those conclusions. But I, I would say the real test for him in district is the retail level of politics. It's not something that he has done personally. It is something that he has observed Exception, you know, with with a exceptional retail politician uh, in in the in the person of Marty Walsh, um, but that's the real test for him. I think it's an insider game to talk about where the money came from, um, you know, how much came from certain individuals, what were their motivations. I think that's real insider stuff. I think this candidate and every single other candidate that's vying in that uh, in that election. 
uh, is going to have to prove themselves on the retail level, and that's the real test for Dan. Uh, so we know that that was actually an issue that was made by Senator Barbara Letalian, who's vying for the seat. Uh, the donation came from uh, a brother of Jared Kushner. It it made headlines. It made the globe. Sean, you're saying that that's, that's not going to be a component going forward? Well, it certainly, I, in my view, that is, uh, you know, kind of a one-day story, and, and, you know, there's an obviously attenuated relationship. What she's trying to suggest is that uh, Dan might not be as independent and able to challenge this president because the brother of the man who married the president's daughter is somehow connected to the president. So it's many a, degrees. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of degrees. And, you know, Barbara's brand is not political gimmickry. Barbara's brand is uh, defense and championing, um, you know, um, marginalized communities, whether it be the LGBT community or whether it be uh, people with disabilities. And so, you know, she's going to catch a lot more uh, flies with the, with that profile than putting this kind of stuff out there. Granted, a lot of these other candidates are probably worried because of what Dan was able to produce from a fundraising perspective. They're probably worried that he's a, now a, an 800-pound gorilla and need to get some attention for themselves, but this isn't something that's on brand for her. But setting that aside for a second, I mean, do these things ever matter? Are there situations where you got money from a specific individual comes into play? I mean, you, you, you think back to this last week, and there's been all this noise about donations that came to Democrats from Harvey Weinstein, for instance. D does this kind of thing matter to anybody? Does it stay in the news, or does, is it here today, gone tomorrow, and just good for a headline? Well, I think for people that are politically active um, and, um, you know, engaged in politics from a professional perspective, whether it's the news media or people that are kind of circling Beacon Hill or Capitol Hill, it's always good fodder. I'm not sure that the general public cares until it crosses a line. And that line is, is it pay for play? When you have an open seat like this in the third congressional district, it's not pay for play. None of these people currently have the congressional seat. And so you're not going to see that money show up in this campaign until somebody truly takes uh, a commanding lead in polling or is able to get through the primary process. At that point, the institutional money starts to show up. PAC money starts to show up. Um, you know, I don't think that the general public cares that Jared Kushner's brother, who went to Harvard with uh, Dan Coe, is supporting him. Uh, I think what they care about is whether Dan Coe can put the ideas and effort that he's been able to demonstrate in uh, in Boston uh, in in play for the people of the third congressional district. Another question that I had, uh, you know, Lori Trahan, another one of the candidates, she she raised a smaller amount. I think it was something around two hundred thousand dollars. Two hundred forty. Um, right, but. Among her donors, she had former Congressman Marty Meehan and his former wife and potential candidate for the seat, she said that she's not running, uh, Eileen Murphy Meehan. What does what does that mean? Where in the in the bucket of three different candidates does or uh, in the bucket of three different donors, where does that fall? Well, I think it kind of falls in in maybe all three buckets. It falls in the affinity side because, um, you know, if you work on behalf of a person in Congress, you're doing constituent services for your district and you're coming to know the people in your district. So there's a familiarity with her, which is great for her. Uh, the second thing is, you know, she's impressed people. Um, and so she's getting that as well. And the third is, you know, I think a different kind of proximity. 
she's from there. She's been around there. Um, her social circle is there. Family is there. I think it makes sense that this is where the bulk of her money is going to come from. We, we did some analysis to look at where her money came from and found that 91000 of her 241 came from in-district. So she actually outraised Dan Coe in the, in the 3rd congressional, congressional District. Does that have any significance? Or, is it, again, is it just too early to start, to start uh, you know, making these things into tea leaves? Well, it's it's great fodder for a discussion like this. I'm not sure that people sitting over their kitchen table uh, discussing who they're going to vote for care about those breakdowns. I still think that there is uh, enough uh, economic distress in the 3rd Congressional District for people to worry about what these people plan to do to support um, the communities that are in that district, that they're not going to be bogged down with kind of the, the parlor games around, you know, percentages. Just quickly uh, to, to turn to the U.S. Senate race, uh, you know, with Elizabeth Warren and a growing field of Republican challengers, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren had another, you know, significant fundraising haul around over $3 million. Um, we also have challengers like John Kingston, who posted, I think it was like $3.2 million in the most recent quarter, but $3 million of that was, was self-funding coming from the candidate himself. What does that mean? What does that say? Well, it says that he seems to be all in, um, and I think he wants to be able to take up that kind of Charlie Baker vote that exists in the Commonwealth, which is kind of a down-the-middle Republican uh, vote that, um, you know, I love Elizabeth Warren. I think the world of her, but she's truly one of the most polarizing um, people in politics, um, and I think, you know, you've got a, a bunch of different segments of the Republican Party that want to take her on. Certainly Jeff Deal is more in the in the Trump mode um, and Lindstrom is is more in the Charlie Baker Mitt Romney mode. Uh, Kingston is in that mode as well. I think they think they really got a good shot here. Um, Elizabeth Warren's money is something I've never seen anything like the phenomenon of Liz Warren's money. I've never seen anything like, you know, older you know, retirees from some town in California sending $25 a month online to her. That makes up a, a huge amount of her um, finance uh, haul every single uh, quarter. And it's just pretty impressive. So John Kingston's all in, $3 million, three million plus. Uh, let's talk for a second about uh, Beth Lindstrom. Not, no big self-funding reported so far, and not that high numbers, actually. No, and I, I expect that the numbers are going to go up for her. I mean, she is very tapped into um, kind of the the Republican establishment and the Romney kind of world uh, of uh, in, in politics, and that that group of people are going to show up for her at some point. That coupled with the fact that she is a viable candidate against um, a sitting U.S. senator that the Republican Party has really targeted this year and is already. Um, trying to pile on through social media uh, and likely going to be put piling on in paid media um, over the course of the next couple of months to try to soften um, Elizabeth Warren up. Um, I'm not sure it'll work. Any expectations on outside spending in that race? There's going to be, I imagine, an enormous amount of outside spending, um, and it'll come from the likely sources, the Koch brothers, the Mercers of the world. You know, this woman has put um, 
people at the top on notice that she's got the backs of almost everybody else in every other uh, class, whether it's folks who are poor, whether it's folks who are middle class. And she's really made a, a, a concerted effort to focus her attention on fairness and growing opportunity out to people on the margins. Um, and that threatens uh, these folks and they're gonna spend real money in this race, I expect. Just quickly to jump to the governor's race, we have Governor Charlie Baker with a total war chest, somewhere around $6 million. And then, you know, among the three Democratic candidates, not necessarily raising that much money. Uh, Sean, you have experience with, uh, uh, you know, a governor who's, who's raised a bunch of money. What does, what does this say about the current field of candidates? I think it says a lot about incumbency. I think it says a lot about our economy being ex extremely strong right now and people not feeling they've got to bother with this race. Uh, and so I think the governor, um, you know, his support is, I think, broad, but not necessarily that deep because I don't think people are that tuned in. Will the Democratic fundraising start at some point? I mean, will those numbers, will the numbers of one or more of those candidates really shoot up? You know, I like to think that at some point the Democratic Party uh, wakes up to the fact that it, as an organization, is not well served when it doesn't have the uh, the corner office, right? Um, but that does not mean that people, certainly the proximity money is not going to show up for the Democratic uh, candidates that are out there. Most of the establishment thinks that this is a, a foregone conclusion and therefore will spend their money uh, in in the other place. Uh, they will not spend their money uh, with Democratic challengers. Um, so these guys are going to have to appeal on the basis of of, um, of ideology and hopefully they're going to be in, you know talking to people that they're that are impressed with them. Uh, there's only so far that that uh, affinity money can go. Excellent, Sean. Uh, thank you so much for your insights. I've actually learned a lot. The the three different donor pools is, is something that uh, I'm going to ask you about in the future about a lot more candidates. Good. Well, the phone lines are open, but, uh, but uh, my wife told me this morning, thank you guys for having me first and foremost. My wife told me this morning that I have a face for podcasts. So <laughs> we I, can confirm. I, I'm, very, I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you so much. Last week, Lauren convinced me that we should cover the special election for the Bristol and Norfolk state Senate seat. And I was right. And you were right. As always. Okay. Well, be that as it may, election day was this past Tuesday and the Democrat won. There's always a risk of reading too much into special election results, but there are some interesting things to unpack here. Each side had something to prove, and as we've seen across the country in special elections since last year, the big names were out in force. That's right. Democrat Paul Feeney came out on top against Republican Jacob Ventura, as well as independent candidate Joe Shortsleeve. Feeney beat Ventura by five points, and essentially he won or stayed competitive in every town but Seekonk and Rehoboth, both pretty conservative uh, towns. Yeah, and I think that's what's sort of interesting about this whole district. I mean, we touched on it a little bit last week, but I looked at the numbers, and when you look at statewide candidates in this district— this district is the fourth most Republican voting district in the whole state when you look at the state Senate districts. So, you know, you've heard a lot from the mass GOP and in the news about how, about Charlie Baker's party and so forth and all the changes he's made at the mass GOP. This was this was sort of an early test or this was a test of whether or not all those powers, when they align together in a district that should be friendly or may be friendly, can they push a candidate? Can they push their candidate over the line? And clearly they weren't able to. 
one one of the components here is you know you look at the involvement of of groups and supporters uh things like the unions uh democratic activists and that's really where paul feeney succeeded in coming over the line here a low turnout state special election it's it's another one of those instances obviously every vote counts you know it's always going to come down to turnout but in a low turnout special you election <laughs> it's all it all comes down to turnout. it all comes down to turnout <laughs> it's, the it's only good. poll that matters was on election day exactly exactly but but seriously but these these tried and true statements are tried and true because they are, they true. are true that's true so Paul Feeney benefited from the fact that, you know, with all of these different unions that endorsed him, groups like the AFL-CIO, you know, there are so many bodies that can get out, can knock doors, can GOTV in a way that, you know, yes, Republican Charlie Baker was was out in strong support of, of um, Jacob Ventura and, you know, basically every viable Senate candidate. Right, but when you're talking about was, the bodies on the on the street, knocking on doors, pulling people out, getting them to the polls, and it's only a couple hundred that matter, that's, yeah, that's a very good point. Exactly, that's a, that's a huge role here. Let's quickly touch on independent candidate Joe Shortsleeve, because one of the things I heard after after election day was that he he may have pulled some votes from the Republican. Anything is there anything to that? So with an independent candidate like him, this is another example of you know he didn't have a party apparatus necessarily to. GOTV in that sense. He didn't raise a lot of money. He had something like $6,000 in the bank by the end of it. Um, And name recognition, in theory, could work for him. However, he... Uh, was on WBZ in Boston, but this the Senate district is partially within the Providence media market. About half the houses in the district themselves don't actually get WBZ in Boston. So all of these factors that could essentially have worked for him didn't necessarily turn out. I mean, it could have bitten into into you know his his success there but i mean at the end of the day feeney just just pulled it out yeah and and what i would typically look for in a case like this would be if there was polling that said okay if you chose not to vote for the third party candidate who would you support there's no public polling in this race uh, the mass gop at least did some polling but isn't isn't making it public um, you can also look a little bit at the relationship in terms of the of where the votes came from for each candidate. And there's not really a there's not really much of a relationship. So I'd say there's not really strong evidence that he made a difference in, in either direction. You know, I mean, someone told said if you add his support to Ventura's support, then then you know it beats Feeney. But there's there's no reason to think that some of his voters wouldn't have gone to Feeney. Yeah, I mean, it it was a 500 vote difference between Feeney and Ventura and short sleeve secured uh, 1,300 votes. So, yeah, in theory that, you know, That'd basic math yeah. means that... <laughs> we can add. <laughs> uh, basic math essentially means that, yes, you know, votes in either on either side could have could have helped out, but it's, I don't know. It's hard to run as a third-party candidate. Exactly. down to. Exactly. There are two other special elections that the Mass GOP is planning to compete in. Lauren, tell us about those. So there's three special elections kind of in the docket right now. We have uh, one out in Berkshire County for uh, Rep. Gail Ann Caridi. We have another one uh, in Essex County to replace uh, Rep. Brian Dempsey. And then we also have a uh, state Senate election um, in the Worcester and Middlesex district uh, to replace uh, Rep. Jen, or I'm sorry, Senator Jen Flanagan. The Mass GOP only sees themselves as, be- as being viable in uh, the the Essex race 
as well as the uh, the Worcester race, the one uh, to replace Senator Jen Flanagan. I think there's a good reason for the Flanagan one. I mean, that's another one of these that's on the in the top 10 as far as Republican voting. So, you know, we saw basically a liberal Democrat win this last week in what should be a pretty conservative district as Massachusetts districts go, which starts off pretty far to the left. Worcester Middlesex, Middlesex District is another one of those. If they want to win, if they want to grow their numbers, this is the kind of district where they at least have to make a showing. I want to go back to something that you said before when, when at the top of the show, Steve, where you mentioned that we shouldn't read too much into special elections. Obviously, this podcast is about reading into elections, and we are <laughs> reading very, too much into them, and we're, we're very much reading into into special elections. But Steve, why why issue that caveat? What does that mean? Well, it's not. It's it, there's special factors in each one. So you you mentioned Paul Feeney and the influence that unions had on the ground. Um, you know, there's there's candidate factors. You know, what was the candidate right for the district? Could the candidate raise money? Was there some sort of scandal? You know, there's there's always things always ways to explain away particular individual elections. The thing is, you don't really know until you have a larger sample size of elections to look at which of the tea leaves you should have been looking at and which ones were just noise. Um, They're mystery bellwethers, if you will. Yes. What, what was a bellwether? We don't know until, until, until next year. Uh, we won't know until we see in 2018, you know, was, was the fact that a liberal Democrat could win in the fourth most conservative district in the state, was that an indication that Democrats were about to grow their numbers even more? Or was it just because of the individual factors in that race and Feeney himself and Ventura himself and so forth? So we're not absolutely insane for looking into all of this stuff. No, I mean, there, there's certainly things to look at, um, you know, and things to talk about and things to take note of. But, you know, you can't view one election as predictive. It's interesting, but not, I wouldn't say, fully predictive. Cool. Just wanted to clear that up. So let's move on to proof that Steve isn't the only pollster in town with Massing Polling Group. There's a new poll out this morning of likely Boston voters from WGBH. From WGBH. Yes. There's a WGBH poll. Yes. That's big news. Okay, (laughs) let's get into that. Why is that big news? And also, are there any surprises in this poll itself? This is only the second poll that's happened since the preliminary election. So it's it's by anyone, not by anybody. Yeah. So we did ours um, in late September. This one was done just this last Saturday through Tuesday. So very recent. Um, It's from WGBH, which which, um, hasn't done polling in a while. Um, And it's interesting, I think, also because it shows that the race really hasn't moved a lot. So. You know, you don't always have to have big movement for something to be interesting. Uh, this shows that the race is about where it was. The other thing that's interesting in this poll is that they really dig into the issues a lot. Um, we did that in the WBUR poll as well. And I think there's some, some interesting overlap there. So, yes, Marty Walsh is far ahead. But also the top issue, so the cost of housing, was the number one issue, just like it was in the WBUR poll. Um, there were also a few issues where voters gave the city a pretty strong grades, a bunch of issues where... Um, where the grades weren't necessarily very strong. But then they did something that I think is interesting, which was they asked whether you would agree or disagree with a series of statements, and there were things like whether you'd recommend your neighborhood to a friend, whether Boston is welcoming to new immigrants, whether you know it's a place where hopes and dreams can be realized for people like me. You know, these ah. sort of happy, these, yeah, these statements that show, I think, whether people really are pleased with the, the way that their existence is. And they found very strong agreement with these statements. So there's, even though there's low grades on some of the specifics, there's people still like that they live in Boston. They'd still recommend it to others. They still feel like it's somewhere where they can get where they're trying to get. Now, wasn't it 91% of respondents said that they would recommend their neighborhood to, to someone else? Right. Which and I think speaks a lot to this kind of sense of pride that people 
that I think is unique to Boston itself. It's it is such a city of neighborhoods, and I think those outside of Boston or maybe outside of Massachusetts don't necessarily understand that. So to see that kind of loyalty is is kind of telling and almost surprising in a poll like this. Yeah, you don't see 91% saying they'd recommend much of anything these days. You know, you don't just have that level <laughs> of agreement uh, on things. So that was interesting. They also had the Amazon bid, and they found a very similar, um, very similarly strong endorsement of the idea of bringing Amazon to Boston. One thing I'd take note of is that this poll, just like any poll of likely voters, is not necessarily similar to how to what you would get if you did a poll of all residents. So you have people who have lived here for much longer. You have a more white sample than you'd find if you put, did a poll of all residents. You have people who are older, people who are higher income, and so forth. And that's just by virtue of who actually turns out to vote. Interesting. So this isn't necessarily indicative of all of Boston. You know, if you if you were to do a census and to poll everyone on the census, we wouldn't necessarily see the same results. Definitely not. I mean, one one big group, one big and sort of easy group to talk about that you're missing is new young residents, you know, because they don't turn out to vote by and large. Um, you know, we've we've nicknamed uh, wards 21 and 22 the isthmus of apathy because so few people <laughs> out there actually turn out to vote. The isthmus of apathy. Yes. Wow. Um, wow. So. As a former resident of, of that area, I can I can identify yeah. with that. Alston Brighton for the win. <laughs> uh, also, one of the things that I want to touch on and I think that isn't necessarily a part of the conversation about polling and kind of, you know, awareness of that is that. There's actually a crazy concentration of polling and pollsters in Massachusetts and here in Boston. Steve, obviously, you're a part of that. Let us into your secret society. <laughs> that's that's true. I mean, this this WGBH poll was done by Anderson Robbins. Um, that name may sound familiar if you're a polling nerd like myself. Um, they also do the Fox News poll. Uh, the Fox News poll is a, is a bipartisan team of pollsters, and they're the Democrat half of that bipartisan team. Um, we also have Suffolk University, of course, right right here on Beacon Hill. They do the poll for USA Today. Um, and then you have a whole bunch of, of good statewide pollsters that do polls both in Boston and, and around the state. And just recently, um, the pollsters up at UMass Lowell have started doing polling for the Washington Post. So we've kind of gotten used to thinking that that, you know, public opinion is known and it is in Massachusetts, but that's not really how it is everywhere. You know, we, we have, you know, whether you think it's a luxury or a curse, we have a lot of polling and a lot of information about what people actually think. I remember you I remember this came up during the Boston Olympic issue where, you know, there was polling that specifically you did, Steve, that that showed public opinion around the the bid and you know Boston 2024 and then you know it was it was then relocated to California and what there hasn't been or th there's been very very there's little been there's been no public polling and in, in, on the LA Olympics except for one that was partially sponsored by boosters of the Olympics so um, you know here again we had monthly polling then that was just ours you know there were several other public pollsters that issued one 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 or more during that period. Um, but it did. It, that ended up being one of the things that the U United States Olympic Committee cited when they decided to pull out of the Boston bid was the lack of public support. But, you know, it's, I think, tribute to the commitment of media outlets and the commitment of the other sponsors of this polling to the importance of public opinion, which I think it's obvious that I think it's important because it's what I do. <laughs> you know, but if you think about it for a second, like there, there's you live in a democracy. We, you know, decide things by, you know, who by voting and elections and so forth. But between the between elections, there's not really any 
reliable way to measure public opinion other than polling. So what we do, I think, allows leaders to at least know what their constituents think. They can still substitute their own judgment if they want. They can still decide that the public doesn't necessarily have the best information or hasn't made the best decision. But this is a way to bring what the public thinks to elected leaders. Great point, Steve. All right. And because our time here is coming to a close, we have one quick thing, a piece of news that just came over the transom. Peter Tedeschi, the former CEO of Tedeschi Food Shops, has just announced that he's going to challenge Congressman Bill Keating uh, to run for Congress. And that's down in the 9th Congressional District. And tell us a little bit about the 9th Congressional, Steve. Yeah, the 9th Congressional District is down south of Boston, stretching all the way down to the Cape. Um, It's one of the three potentially most competitive districts in Massachusetts. So we already have this wild scrum going on in the 3rd. Um, that we've talked about on the show a couple times. Um, Seth Moulton is, is, the, is the elected representative in the 6th. He doesn't seem to be going anywhere. The ninth is the other one where sometimes you see competitive races between Democrats and Republicans. So one, one quick thing to note, too, is that Tedeschi, uh, namesake of the Tedeschi convenience stores, uh, is in the long line of Massachusetts candidates who have some sort of a food purveyor type background. Interesting bit of trivia. And now to answer last week's trivia question. 1986 was the year that one of Massachusetts' most famous politicians announced his retirement. Who was it? The answer is Tip O'Neill. That's also the namesake of probably the funniest hashtag Matt Polly Twitter accounts. Sorry, everyone else. The ghost of Tip O'Neill. Seriously, you should follow it at Speaker Tip. And I promise this is not a paid promotion. But we would do paid promotions if you pay us. <laughs> <laughs> And now for this week's question, which is a nod to this week's Amazon HQ2 deadline for proposals, which was yesterday. Which town was nicknamed the City of Notions? It was Londonderry, New Hampshire, wasn't it? Uh, it was not. It was a Massachusetts town, though I do hear you can drive to the City of Notions in less than an hour from Londonderry, New Hampshire, according to a bid that they submitted trashing the city of Boston and pretty much the whole state of Massachusetts. Anyhow, keep sending us those answers and we'll keep rewarding you with more free content. And that is it for this week. I'm Lauren Dzenski of Politico, Massachusetts. And I'm Steve Cazella of the Massing Polling Group. Our producer and provider of notional trivia questions is Hannah Shinatri. Find us online at SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn. Thank you for listening.